if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, love for you to open up to two places today. The first of both Testaments, Genesis 6, we'll begin our time together. We'll flip over to Matthew 4 in just a little while. Genesis 6, not hard to find, just uh, begin uh, at the front and turn a few pages forward. And then uh, we'll uh, put a bookmark, if you don't mind, over in Matthew 4. As we conclude our series... Uh, called The Great Commission at Risen. Uh, we do a series or we do a study on the Great Commission probably about every two years. We should do it every year probably. Maybe we'll start doing that. Uh, but we uh, last did uh, a study on the Great Commission uh, two years ago to begin the year. And uh, I believe it's very important there. It's vital that the church has this conversation um, again and again. Of course, in our small groups, we've been talking about the Great Commission a lot. And we'll continue to do that as this is the heartbeat of the local Church, um, But our goal with every service, and we do have a goal, um, there's a method to our madness if you, uh, maybe you pick up on it, maybe sometimes you're wondering, uh, you know, just what is the, uh, what is the idea there, um, but uh, our goal with every service, uh, really we have two goals with every service, every song that we sing, every sermon that we deliver, um, our goals are twofold. Uh, to bring comfort to you in your challenging seasons, because no doubt you face some challenging seasons, and it's the the church's uh, it's the church's job. My passion is the Bible's a message to you that there is comfort for you in your challenging seasons. But also, uh, our our goal is to challenge you out of your comfort zones. So if you wonder why sometimes the conversation is more comforting and sometimes it's more challenging, it's because that's intentional. Uh, sometimes our goal is strictly to comfort you in the challenging season that you're, of course, facing. But also, uh, we have an obligation from the Word of God to challenge each and every one of us. Uh, and the Bible challenges us. God is always uh, trying to challenge us out of our comfort zone because that's how He gets us to impact the world and make a difference in our lives and the lives of many others. So uh, that is our goal, to offer hope and help. Sometimes we do both, sometimes we do one or the other, but I believe it's always one or the other. But one of the major underpinnings of all that, maybe the major underpinning of these goals, is that we always do a proper job, a biblical job, at representing God. Uh, we want to capture the heart of God, and we want to display His true heart and His true nature. We want to make sure that the message of the Bible that captures heart, God's heart and preaches God's heart, we want to make sure that that's not veiled, that that's not you know a footnote. We want to make sure that, that loud and bold and clear is the message from God's Word and, and, and from God's heart. We want to make sure that we are representing God in a clear and proper way. And, and I think, sadly, I think it's easy uh, to, and it's often common, that God is misrepresented. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it just kind of happens uh, that people gather in churches week after week, and they often don't get a clear or truthful picture of God. And, and while there may be some fringe cases where it is intentional, I don't believe it often is malicious or, or, or uh, vile. I, I think it just happens when we blur the lines between what we think and how we feel with what the Bible tells us about God and how the Bible details the heart of God. I think it's easy to blur those lines from what we think and what we feel and what the Bible says is actually true. Uh, and, and over time, it's easy to sort of mix all that together. It's easy, as I often say, to tilt the Bible a certain way. And if you hold it a certain way, you can always make it say what you want it to say. Or people can do that. And, and it's easy to tilt it a certain way and follow a particular tradition and interpret God through a vantage point rather than the other way around. And, and, and before you know it, you have a stronghold of ideologies and practices that are rooted in things that just aren't accurate. 
Uh, now, we could take that premise and go in a number of directions with it today and, and any given Sunday, but where I want to lead us today and, and where our conversation really starts today is around a question that often gets passed around, and it's this question that often is the catalyst for many different um, goals and, that are set and, and movements that are built, but I want to kind of put this question out for you. I think you've heard it asked before. Often, this is what drives the church. This, this question or this idea that there's, we know the answer to, what breaks God's heart? As in, what is God most troubled by? And what is God most concerned about? And what is God most moved by? And what is God most motivated by? And if we understand what breaks God's heart, then we will therefore know what we should be all about and what should break our heart and by virtue, by nature, what should be our motivation and our you know, ambition to overcome those things. But we often hear this question asked. What breaks God's heart? Well, the Bible actually spells out pretty clearly what, in fact, God is most brokenhearted about. And you may be familiar with it. You may not. You may be surprised by it. Uh, but the specific place and point in time when it is identified actually is followed up by a preview of redemption stories. So we're, we find out in the Bible what actually breaks God's heart. We actually get a preview of what God did to overcome that and, and, and remedy, not just his own heart, but the brokenness of the world. So I would like for you to look at a passage of scripture with me, one of the oldest records in the Bible and really in world history uh, that you may not be too familiar with. I'm sure you're familiar with what comes after it, but you might not be familiar with kind of the prologue to that story. So Genesis 6 uh, we're going to drop in at verse number 5, and then we'll read through verse number 8. And then we're going to kind of back out and, and see what was going on around this time, before this time, that helps make sense of it all. Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man, and that's humanity in general. He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the faults of his or her heart was only evil continually. Now, it doesn't get more of an indictment than that, does it? That every thought, every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil all the time. And that's kind of, that's rough, rough, rough condition, right? But that's what God saw. That's how, what God observed. And the Lord was sorry that he made man. Maybe your Bible says it repented God. That just means it, it, it kind of it broke his heart. That the Lord was remorseful. And you think, how in the world could God be remorseful or God be sorry or God be, you know, feel regret? And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast, creeping thing and birth in the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But... There's always one of those, isn't there? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, understanding just what, in fact, broke God's heart is so crucial to interpreting this text and going anywhere with this text. Now, context is so important for this passage in explaining about what about the world was breaking God's heart and, and why God would make such a statement, I regret that I did this. Uh, now, so far in Genesis, the result of sin more than anything has set people against people. So what is breaking God's heart? We're going to see this through context. What exactly is breaking God's heart is that people are suffering at the hands of people. 
And if you pay attention to the details of the stories in Genesis, especially the first few chapters, sin's immediate effect on the world is it has turned people against people, specifically, and kind of ironically, specifically those closest to them. Let me explain. Back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve take the fruit that they shouldn't have ate and then they fall and sin, immediately, if you read the whole story, and you can look at it and hopefully go back and study this later this week or later today, if you read the story in Genesis 3, immediately Adam and Eve's relationship is fractured. There is something that breaks them apart. And immediately they begin to blame one another. Two people made in God's image, made to be partners for in life. Immediately, they begin to blame each other. And in Genesis 3, verse, six, verse 16, God says to Adam and Eve, he says, let me tell you what's going to go on between y'all two. That Adam, you are going to always try to control Eve. This is the curse of sin. I'm not commanding you. And many people misinterpret this. It says there, God says to Eve, he will rule over you. That's not God saying he should rule over you. That's God saying, Eve, this is the fallout of sin. Adam looks at you no longer as his equal, no longer as his partner. He looks at you as a commodity. That's what sin did to relationships between man and woman. Men begin to look at even their wives as an object, not as an equal. And God says to Eve, Eve, you are going to try to do the very same thing to him. <coughs> Your desire will be for him, as in you will desire to control him and manipulate him and take advantage of him. And he's going to do the very same thing to you. It wasn't always meant to be that way. Rather than being equals and co-laborers and helpers, it was open season that they would one-up each other, control each other, manipulate each other. Marriage went from being a delightful partnership of mutual submission to being plagued by a nature that resists and pushes back against the very idea. Then in Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve had two boys, Cain and Abel. And the story goes that Cain allowed his jealousy of Abel and spite for Abel to fester in him more and more. And he doesn't realize that he feels like he's in competition against Abel. Because God says to Abel, I, 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 I'm, I'm grateful or I'm pleased with your sacrifice. He says to Cain, go back and try again. And Cain feels this jealousy in his heart. He doesn't realize it's there, but he begins to look, his, look at Abel no longer as a brother but as an enemy. And God comes to Cain and says, listen, buddy, sin is crouching at your door. You better master this or it will master you. And he says, not a big deal. I got to go out here and meet my brother. I want to talk to him. Haven't talked to him in a while. We're just going to have a nice little friendly conversation. Next thing you know, it, he kills him. He didn't go out with you know, intent to kill him. I don't know what happened. Picked up a rock, picked up a boulder. I don't know what the story. We don't know the details. But lo and behold, Cain kills brother. And see what happened there? Abel was, God was pleased with Abel. And Cain was so jealous of Abel being ahead of him that his only solution was to knock Abel down and stand on his corpse. And that's how he can get ahead of him. And ever since then, humanity has been fighting each other. And the solution is, well, if you're ahead of me, I'll just knock you down. And I'll stand on your back. And then, see if you can get ahead of me. Then, Later on in Genesis 4, there's a guy named Lamech. Lamech is a descendant of Cain. 
Lamech shows the condition of humanity had gotten so bad, uh, whereas Cain was conflicted in, in denial about his conflict with Abel, Lamech had no shame. Lamech says, oh, God showed mercy to Cain because Cain told him he didn't mean to. Well, hey, God's going to show him mercy. God's going to show me double mercy. God's going to be behind, going to take care of me even more than he's took care of him, even though I gladly murdered two people. Lamech, he writes a song about it. Genesis 4, verse 23 and 24. Lamech literally writes a song about killing two people. No big deal. It's just how the world works. You got to do what you got to do. But do you see the progression of the regression of humanity in the earliest of days? There is this breakdown in the human race, this decline rapidly and sharply. For two people not realizing what sinful nature would do, to one fighting against it and feeling remorse for it, to another with complete disregard for anybody that he might possibly be offending. And I want you to notice this. In each instance, the fracture in the relationship not only gets worse, but it gets more blatant and more defiant. In each instance, it goes from being, well, I didn't mean to, or I'm just, I don't, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying, I'm just shifting it over from being, you know, kind of casual to kind of being in denial to being blatant and defiant. And then above this passage in Genesis 6, we see an unfortunate account about humanity's sexual appetites being completely out of control. And how men begin seeing women as objects and commodities rather than being people of value. And suddenly, relationships become less about a common faith in God and more about another person's power over the other. And if you read the whole book of Genesis, it's all about the breakdown in relationships. And there's violence and there's immorality on every page. Even in the households of the heroes. Abraham... Jacob and Esau, we know these guys as being heroes of faith, but they're really violent and immoral people because they don't realize what sin was doing to their relationships. So from physical violence to sexual offense and everything in between, it's clear that sinful nature created an appetite for taking and using. Humanity turned inward for itself and thus turned against itself. Humanity said, each by each person said, I'm going to do what's right for me. And by doing what's right for me, I ended up hurting you and you ended up hurting me. And that is the downfall and that is the progression of the whole human race. Now, years and years later, James, the brother of Jesus, I think aware of this Genesis story, James, the brother of Jesus, would write this reflection on what sin had done and continued to do in humanity. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And this, don't miss this, this is what broke God's heart and what breaks God's heart day after day. In Genesis 6, 6, when it says God was sorry that he made humanity, that it was, he was grieved at his heart, I think if we piece all this together, we conclude that what was breaking God's heart was how broken and divided the world was, how self-destructed humanity had become. God made a world filled with creatures in his image, meant to walk in communion with him, meant to you know, build a, a, a world together with one another, and here they were, devoted to one's destruction, devolving into chaos, things would get worse and worse and worse throughout history. And this passage, this passage ends, and it gives us a preview of how God would go about trying to remedy and redeem humanity from this condition. 
as God is brokenhearted about the mess that humanity has descended into. Verse 8 says, Noah found grace or found favor in God's eyes. In a world where people were taking from each other and treating each other on the basis of merit, God says, I'm going to treat one man on the basis of grace. And notice, this, this is God establishing a brand new precedent. In a world where people we're in a world torn apart by conflict with everyone against everyone. God countered by accepting one man by grace and by favor. Can you imagine, and I mean, just imagine, can you imagine a world where our disposition towards one another is not violence, is not taking and using and controlling and manipulating? Can you imagine a world where we see each other and our posture towards each other is grace? In favor. This is what broke God's heart. The people that he made meant to be gracious toward each other, at peace with each other, had broken down in their relationships with him and, of course, each other. Can you imagine how different the world would be if we saw each other through the lens of grace and favor, first and foremost and always? How different the world would be. We'd never take from someone in their weakness because grace gives it doesn't take. We never take advantage of someone for our own gain, but rather we leverage our own advantage for their gain. We would not stubbornly refuse to make peace, but we'd always be actively seeking to show favor to people, even if they don't deserve it, especially when they don't deserve it. You may say, well, that's an ideal world you're imagining, but come on, isn't this the only reason there's a world left? If you say, well, this is never going to happen, Justin, that's, that's a fairy tale world. Don't you know that's the only reason why you and I are here? If God does not show Noah favor when the rest of the world is tearing itself apart, when the rest of the world is using each other and taking from each other, there wouldn't be a world left. And even though that logic makes complete sense, even though people who sought to serve God throughout the ages refused to buy into the idea of God's favor and God's grace, people... Loved, and it's really unfortunate if you read the whole Old Testament, people love the idea of trying to prove their worth to God. They created this facade that they could please Him, and it really was all rooted in this original fallen nature that was always trying to climb higher and do more and obtain more and appear stronger at the expense of others. There is in all of us this competition that goes between us that we don't really realize, and it's usually there when, between the closest of people. And this is why I believe God's heart is broken again and again, especially in our recent generations where this is so well known. Because grace is not our default posture towards one another. Favor is not an automatic exchange between any two given people at any point of time. We continue to do what James says. We quarrel, we fight, and we covet. And guess what? God's heart is broken again and again and again. But his response is still as it was in the days of Noah. Like James says in James chapter 4, verse 6, he gives more grace. And thank God that he does. Because we wouldn't have a chance if he didn't. God keeps giving more grace and more grace. And, and, and the question I want to go, from, go, go, go forward with is, what if we, and I know you think this is impossible, what if we followed suit in relating to people, responded to people, reached out and engaged with people on the basis of more grace and more favor? 
It's clear that this isn't the basis for humanity relationships in our world today because our world is as divided and segmented as ever. We are categorized by all sorts of qualifiers. We are sliced up by gender and age and race, IQ score, social status, buying power, passions and interests. Sin's push in our world is the same as it was in Genesis 3, 4, and 6. All throughout the Bible, sin puts people against other people. And as sin rules our lives, it ruins our relationships. And that's why some of us, some of us are so deceived that we don't realize that we're knocking people down with that word that, we come out, that comes out of our mouth. We don't realize it. We are so deceived that we have to, kind of, we have to keep pushing and, and, and grabbing and using and taking. And we're just so blind. And, and in reality, we'll never receive salvation from God because we don't think we need God. We've got us. We've got ourselves. Meanwhile, a lot of people are defeated because people who use them and take advantage of them make them feel like God is so far from them that there's no hope. You see what sin is doing? Sin sets us against each other and ultimately it keeps us from God. And all throughout the Bible, we see God trying to show Israel what sin was doing, helping them and connecting the dots, but they struggle to understand it again and again. And as a result, they continually manipulate or misunderstood and underestimate their sinful nature. The nation of Israel was plagued by internal strifes. Even the temple became more known for who could not get in than who could. Thankfully, 2,000 years ago, God had had enough of watching man try to reconcile its differences with each other, try to stumble away from him. Their way to him. And God kickstarted a brand new age and a brand new era. God sent Jesus to earth to be the solution, and don't, don't miss this, to be the solution to his own heartbreak. Again, Genesis 5 tells us that God saw the wickedness, he saw the violence, he saw the immorality, he saw that man was set against itself, he saw the breakdown, and his response was grief, and his response was heartbreak. So God sent Jesus to be the solution to his own heartbreak. Genesis 5 is a never-green indictment against humanity. So God's heart grieved him and ate, watching humanity wallow in sin and wage war against one another, destroying everything he intended the earth to be. Instead of showing that there was a better way by making grace felt by one man or by one nation, God did something better. God sent grace incarnate to immerse the world in a better way. Because there's a difference between showing grace and someone embodying grace. And Jesus is the difference. Jesus was and is the difference the world desperately needs. He came not just to show us grace and show us favor, but to demonstrate grace and demonstrate favor, to show us grace and favor in action, to be grace and favor unto us. Jesus' most devoted disciple, John, put it better than I could. In John 1, 14 and 16. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And here's the thing. Jesus' entire ministry was about revealing and sharing this grace with people. It was rooted in relationships where people felt accepted and felt like they belonged. And over time, it became clear that Jesus wasn't just trying to get people to confess something or to believe something. He was trying to build something. 
and include people into something. That phrase there, he dwelt among us. That's the Greek word. He built a tabernacle. He built a dwelling place. Jesus brought with him what the temple and the tabernacle and religion could not bring. By calling us to faith in him, he was building a following. And perhaps his most overlooked motive was mending his father's heart by restoring creation to its intended place. And don't, don't miss the next few points. We've been in a series all about the Great Commission. I think this entire premise actually brings brand new light on the Great Commission and fleshes out what our motivation and ambition should be. I, I think that with this revelation, suddenly the Great Commission makes a whole lot more sense. Because we know the Great Commission is Jesus calling us to continue building his movement, growing his movement, seeing people step out of the fallen world and into their father's world. Or as he called it, our father's kingdom. And I'm telling you, this perspective is brand new for me. And it's been doing a crazy work on my heart because suddenly the urgency and the importance of the Great Commission has taken on a greater and deeper meaning. Because, our, because this is what pleases our Father in heaven. As we mend his heart, we begin to mend his world, his, his, uh, the world that he made. God's heart will not be mended until the world has been restored to his intended place. And that's what's on display in Jesus' ministry. As he demonstrated God's grace and emphasized the difference it could make in our hearts, specifically in how we treat one another and how we interact with each other. When Jesus called his first disciples, he quickly informed them that their ministry would be deeply relational. Maybe they didn't realize it. Maybe you didn't realize it. But we soon will. If you have your bookmark there, flip over to Matthew 4. And I want to show you the through line that we usually ignore in the gospel that I don't think we can afford to anymore. In Matthew 4, Jesus has just began his ministry and he makes a statement uh, in verse number 17. That the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, repent, get ready, get your mind in sync with what I'm about to say, because I am bringing the kingdom to earth. And people didn't pay, pay, pay any attention to that. They didn't know what he meant. What are you talking about kingdom? I mean, are you a king? Are you bringing us into some place of royalty or riches? And that was not what he was doing. But they didn't understand that when he said kingdom, he meant his father's kingdom. That he meant he was restoring the world the way it was always meant to be. And then he says in verse 18, or it says in verse 18, that he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea. And, and we've heard this before. He says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So he sees them casting a wide net into the water, bringing the fish in, and he uses this to demonstrate to the people that this is what I'm doing. I'm building a movement that is casting the net to the world, and I'm going to use you two men to help me get this ball rolling. So here we have a very familiar calling. First disciples, we see Jesus inform them that they were going to join him in the disciple-making process. And he gives them a rather, rather strange commandment. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And without the context of the rest of the Gospels, we often reduce this down to this message about sterile clinical conversions. And that's not what it's about. That's not the nature of his ministry at all. Jesus never, and you can fact check this, he never was about trying to get people just to confess something. 
He was about trying to get people's hearts healed and see people form a relationship with him and heal their relationships around them. He was about seeing people step into his kingdom and find a new life. Jesus never walked up to somebody and said, okay, let me tell you something. I'm, I'm God's son. God made you. Confess this and you'll be saved. I'll see you later. Jesus formed relationships with people, and he was always trying to lead people into a community, into his community, into the kingdom of God. So when he says to the disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men, he's not just going to train them about how to get a response from people. He's going to teach them how they may model the kingdom as he was modeling the kingdom, that they might begin to welcome people as he was welcoming people. So right after he calls the first disciples, he gives this most famous sermon in Matthew 5 called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important that we don't zoom out and miss that this sermon was not a wide shot meant to anybody that might be passing by. This sermon was specifically to his disciples. You can almost label this chapter as Disciple Making 101. Because in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 1, as he sees the multitude, it says he went up to the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So they're surrounded by all these people. The previous chapter says they were hurting people, people looking for direction in their life, people looking for answers and healings. And the disciples are wondering, how are we going to make how are we going to fish for people? How are we going to do this, Jesus? So he calls them to the mountaintop, and he begins to teach them how they were to make disciples. And he read through what we often call the Beatitudes. He begins defining and detailing the virtues that are valued and to be celebrated in the kingdom he was building. He begins by saying, those who realize they have a need in this world, that a need that this world can't meet. Maybe you've been ridiculed by some for not being able to find help in this world. But to those of you that have been ridiculed by the world, those of you that have been marked as lacking something, or those of you that are broken, my kingdom is for you. My kingdom is for people just like you. If you can't find answers in the world, then good, good luck. Or, you know, uh, it's, good, it's good for you because I have given, can give you what the world can't give you. And if you've given up on trying to find it in the world, the way of the world, with the rat race of the world, then you've come to the right place. And he says in verse one, verse 2 and 4, or he opens his mouth in verse 3 and 4, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He says, people that come to me are not like the people that go to the world and look for the answers in the world. Because you're looking for completely different things. If you read through what we call the Beatitudes, we begin to see that Jesus details and defines his kingdom in a brand new way, in a different way than the world was known for. We read the next few verses and we see that his kingdom is built on, on different, better attitudes, hence Beatitudes. And we see things like humility and righteousness, justice, mercy, purity, and peace. And don't miss this. He's talking about how people treat each other. Because in the world, that in, in their world, might made right. There was no justice. There was no mercy. There was no, there was just taking and using. It was no purity or peace. It was just confusion and pain. But down in verse 13, he says to his disciples, after telling them the virtues and ethics that the kingdom would be built on, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. 
as in the world was rotting it is rotting and decaying it is only wicked always continually that's the heart of every man and woman the world is rotting but you all my disciples you can make a difference you are the salt of the earth Salt that loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So you see, he's holding his disciples to a very high place of accountability. You are salt. He says, you are light. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand and give light to those that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't move past that too quickly. It does not say so that they may see your good beliefs. Because they don't see those, do they? Well, I see them. They see me in the parking lot. Well, that's not enough. That's not what Jesus is looking for. You are salt. You are light. You are refuge. And it's your imperative that you may let your good works be seen so that your Father in heaven may be glorified. So his heart may be healed and the world may be restored and people may begin coming to him. He sends a signal that a new day is dawning, A new kingdom is being established. And he commissions his disciples to go and welcome people into his kingdom by demonstrating for and unto them its ethics and values. So if you, make, if you mark in your Bible or if you make highlights in your Bible, I want you to draw a connection from back in chapter 4, verse 19, where it says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. You cannot disconnect that commandment in chapter 5, 1 through 16. How are we going to make disciples? By living lifestyles full of the kingdom ethics and kingdom values. Not by just inviting them, but by demonstrating for them and unto them what makes the kingdom different. Does that make sense? I want you to take a look at the first two lessons he teaches the disciples in verse 21 through verse 30. He tells them that there cannot be duplicity in their hearts. If they are going to serve God, they have to treat people differently. And primarily lessons, and his primary lessons call all the way back to the initial plight the world was suffering under anger and lust concerning how immersed the world was in hatred and immorality. Listen to how serious Jesus is about his followers' ethics. You've heard it said of old that you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell. Therefore, if you bring a gift to the altar and remember that your brother has an all against you, leave your gift before the altar and go first be reconciled with your brother and then come back to the altar. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and be thrown in prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will not, you by no means get out of there until you've paid the last penny. So do you see how much, how high of a standard Jesus holds over Christians, over disciple makers? He said, you've heard it said of old, oh, just, just don't murder somebody. I say if there's hatred in your heart, if there's unforgiveness in your heart, 
And then he goes and takes it to another level. You've heard it said of old that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. And listen to the extreme that Jesus says his followers should go to if this means them staying faithful to him and staying on mission. If your right eye offends you, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to go. It is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now that might be a little intense for what you were expecting today. But this is Jesus saying, listen guys, this is how serious I am. I came to heal my father's heart. I came to build his kingdom. And that's what I called you to help me do. And if something gets in the way, if our sinful nature of anger and lust gets in the way, if it makes us think we should use people and take advantage of people and mistreat people and disrespect people, then we've already lost. Jesus says we cannot represent him if we are not given to lifestyles that are anchored in love, reconciliation, purity, and commitment. He goes on to talk about more about love and generosity and charity, and then he teaches them how to pray. We're almost done, I promise. It gets better from here. He teaches them how to pray and how to format their prayers. And there's a line in there that we've said before, but punctuates this standard he's setting over his disciples pertaining to their mission, to their great commission. Look over to Matthew 6, verse 9 and 10. Y'all know the Lord's Prayer. I don't need to really give you much detail about that. But this is how he says they should begin their prayers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is our goal as disciples? What is our priority as disciples? To make this world as it is in heaven. Well, I can't change the world, but you know what we can change? Or what can be changed is our hearts. And one person at a time, we can begin to spread this as it is in heaven kingdom. Disciples are called to embody as it is in heaven lifestyles in order to establish an as it is in heaven kingdom to effectively welcome people to God. So don't get me wrong. The Great Commission is definitely about evangelism. We spent a whole week on that. It's definitely about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's also, and maybe most importantly for you and I in our daily lives, it's about demonstrating and upholding the values of the kingdom of God. We can preach Jesus all day long. We can witness to who Jesus is and what he's done all day long. But if we want to be truly successful in the Great Commission, we cannot forget the horizontal element. We are called to witness to the gospel. We are likewise called to welcome people into his kingdom. And that's active welcome. That's going and reaching people welcome. As in we are called to embody and display principles and virtues of the world as God intended it to be. So that people may come and feel and rely on God's grace. And thus share and ex extend it. If we are preaching Jesus, but we are not practicing his kingdom ethics, we are not effectively welcoming people to God. We just aren't. 
Because if there's duplicity, Jesus says there's no place in his kingdom for that. Leave the altar and go make things right with your brother first. Now, I know what you're saying. Justin, the world's a messy place. And there are so many people doing it their own way and doing it wrong. Do you really think my efforts to promote Jesus and practice his standards, do you really think me being so militant to these principles, do you think I'm going to make that big of a difference in the world? I mean, salt, light, refuge, I hear it, but I'm just one person. There's billions of people on planet Earth. How can I make a difference? And I hear you. I mean, it, it sounds rather idealistic and optimistic for people to say, and of course it may be, makes good for a sermon, but it doesn't really make good for, or doesn't make sense for real life. It doesn't take away from what Jesus said. It doesn't make us any less accountable, but I understand it can be disheartening. And this line of thought gets me to thinking. What if there existed a place? What if there was an institution? What if there was a place where maybe those differences that are in all of us didn't go away, but they didn't define us anymore? And what if there was a place where we were not discredited or disproportionately ranked by all the things the world sizes us up with? What if there was a place where we felt as if we were all welcome? What sort of inroads do you think that could make at destigmatizing our differences, at lowering the level of hostility and incompatibility that exists between so many of us? What if there was a place where people loved people intentionally and invested in each other sincerely? What if there was a place where we weren't just on our own trying to reach people for Jesus, but we were on a team welcoming people to Jesus with support, with infrastructure? What if there was a place that facilitated our efforts and amplified the message of the gospel that made our individual efforts a lot more, I don't know, made them a lot more effective. I mean, what if, right? I mean, if only there was a place or there was an organization that could help us do this job. Too bad we're on our own, right? <laughs> Too bad that place doesn't exist. I mean, what, is all, what did Jesus' ministry build up to? He stood on a mountaintop one day and he said to his disciples, I am building my church. And you are not just on your own. This is not just you making all, doing all that you can do. You are now a part of a community. You are now on a team that lives and dies for the Great Commission. Jesus came to build the very institution that we were just dreaming about. And the greatest, most unfortunate disconnect and fumbles in the history of our faith is that we forget this. And the church doesn't embrace this. Jesus established his church and designed it to facilitate the Great Commission by being a place that welcomes and impacts people with his kingdom values. <laughs> The church is and always was meant to be an essential partner in the Great Commission, assisting and enabling us to reach lost, unbelieving, and outside people. Instead of making it something that is a time and place, it was always supposed to be a dynamic, fluid environment. They prioritized making Jesus known and making him felt. Nothing else is sacred. 
Worshiping Jesus and welcoming people are the only sacred traditions of the church. Not human traditions or translations, locations, styles, clothes, songs, nominations, my will, your will. What if the church got this? What if it wasn't so confused about what we were doing and what our calling was? Instead of turning the church into an insider club where people don't know what's going on and people come and go without any feeling like they belong, what if we begin praying that God take us back to the roots of it all? What if we scraped away all the junk, just to be clear about it? What if we scraped away everything working against the Great Commission? And what if we begin doubling down on what actually welcomes people to God and holding each other accountable in this process? What if we had less bureaucracy and more beatitudes? What if we countered the animosity in this world with intentional, relational love and kindness for one another? What if instead of pointing to the outside world as the problem, but we double down on our commitment to the kingdom ethics? And what if instead of making excuses about why people don't come, what if we begin holding ourselves accountable to what we must do to take grace to people and impact people with grace and thus welcome people into God's kingdom? If we would do that, the church can be and should be the most powerful, persuasive movement on the planet. Where Jesus' presence and power are irresistible forces on display in that work. I'll give you some homework. I want you to read Acts chapter 2, verse 42, or verse 40 through 47. It's the very end of Acts 2. If you have a Bible that has uh, headings in it, you'll see the last section. The gold standard for the church is that passage in Acts. Where they realize it, that they are a community that is intentionally, relationally wired. Church, this is why, this is why we have made it our goal and will continue to make it our priority to be a place that welcomes everyone to God and why we believe it's so important that everyone who calls themselves a Christian and a church member be held accountable to the ethics of the kingdom. We believe, this is why we will continue to call for the highest of commitment and why we will always say that we is greater than me and us is greater than I. We will continue to be a church that encourages and positions its people to love each other and learn how to live out the kingdom ethics in everyday life. We are going to be a church that removes anything that separates or impedes people from coming inside just like Jesus did. Because our attitude is, why would we complicate what's already been accomplished? Why can't it be as easy as it was for Jesus when he would say to people, come and see? And they came and saw it should be, and it should be for us, and it begins by just us joining together and taking seriously our role in the Great Commission. We are all held to the highest of standards, just like the disciples were in chapter 5 of Matthew. And i got to tell you this, as your pastor, we have no other choice. We are held eternally accountable to the Great Commission. We can't run from this deep down. We don't want to run from this. And it's resource, if it's resources we lack, if it's volunteers we lack, if it's giftedness we lack, we fall on our face and rely on a God who supplies all of our needs. But in the meantime, we must continue coming together in community and being reminded of what our goal is, worshiping together, witnessing to each other outside in the world, and welcoming people to God. We must continue to lean into the body of Christ, shift momentum and the bounds of our collective lives, tethering ourselves to the body of Christ. 
with a common anthem that Jesus built his church for this. He built his church to usher in his kingdom and he's called us to obey the Great Commission. It begins by worshiping and being equipped with a voice to proclaim God's truth. It continues by being a witness to what God has done and can do, showing people the evidence in our lives, being mindful of their needs. But furthermore, we must be a people in a church that welcomes people to God and shows people they belong here, that we want them here, that we want them in the kingdom. And the greatest proof is by treating them like God has treated us. By countering people, by countering the division, by welcoming people with love and reconciliation. So I, I got to say to you all, and I, I love you, I love you, I really do, but I got to tell you this. If there is harbored anger and hatred and unforgiveness in your life, you are never going to be effective at the Great Commission. Because you have allowed something to fracture your ability to build relationships. And Jesus said, if you're worshiping today and you've allowed things to get in between your heart and fracture your heart and build walls between people that you could have relationships with. Jesus says, drop the gift at the altar and go make it right. Jesus says, if you see people as objects, if you look at people as if, as if they're a platform to get higher, you would be better to cut your leg off, cut your arm off and gouge your eye out. Because it's keeping you from being a faithful minister for the gospel. Again, that's not me. That is what it's going to take for any local church to be an as-it-is-in-heaven community. And I think deep down all of us want to obey the Great Commission. So would you join me in saying yes to God? I will begin taking the Great Commission seriously and sacredly. Will you join me in coming to God and saying like Isaiah did, here I am, send me. Would you join me in building a church and being a church that takes it seriously, takes it as seriously as Jesus took it? He suffered and died. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your holy and sobering word. God, you've called us to the Great Commission, and, and none of us, none of us are excluded from this. And our effectiveness on the mission field is directly tied to our faithfulness and our commitment to your kingdom, ethics, and values. Lord, would you bring all of us to a place of sobriety and a place of clarity that we might begin to identify just what is our stumbling blocks that's keeping us from leveraging our relationships, building relationships, being a welcoming force in the kingdom of God. And God, by all means, let it be known that you call all of us and you welcome all of us and you love all of us. You don't say this to chastise. You say this to bring us to a place of healing. You say this to bring us all to a place of partnership in the Great Commission. So, Lord, if somebody needs forgiveness today, would you give it to them? If somebody needs healing today, would you give it to them? But if somebody wants to stand up and say, I want to be obedient to the Great Commission. I want to live out kingdom ethics and values. I want to welcome people to God. And I want to make sure this church is a welcoming place for the people of the world. 
Would you call all of us to that place of unity today? Under your reign? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing forever reign. If you haven't need, the altar is open, but let's all say yes to this call over our lives. series and may we not forget it too soon because the great commission always is the banner over our church each and every day of our lives may the lord bless you and keep you may his face shine upon you and be gracious to you may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace because there is no peace anywhere or anyone else church i love you you're dismissed hope you have a great afternoon we'll see you next time